So welcome once again to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. As you hopefully know by now, my name is Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes, Northern Ireland's largest independent comic book store. I'm joined as always by my podcasting brother-in-arms, Keith. Hi, are you, Alan? How's it going? All good, and we would like to welcome you to another creator interview. So I always ask the question, why should you listen to the podcast? Well, today we're talking to a man who has done things his own way, and as a successful writer has arguably done it in reverse to what is generally accepted as the preferred career path. We certainly have writers in comics who possibly see the medium as a stepping stone to the welcoming arms of television and movies. There have been exceptions in the past, the likes of Jeff Loeb and Kevin Smith come to mind, as writers who return to their first love of comics having carved out a successful career in those other mediums. And I would certainly place today's guest amongst that elite company. Already having conquered television as a writer on projects with Damon Wayans, Chris Rock, Jordan Peele, and even adapting Neil Gaiman's work, he opted to return to his first love, comic books. And since 2017, he has written for Marvel, as well as serving as an executive producer on Hulu's adaptation of Runaways, and even dabbled in a galaxy far, far away. However, arguably his standout work is a creator-owned vampire book for Image Comics called Philadelphia, with artist Jason Sean Alexander. A timely book that explores how a once major city, a beacon of liberty and freedom, can fall into corruption, poverty and brutality, and of course be home to some supernatural creatures of the night. It is my genuine pleasure today to introduce you to the one and only Rodney Barnes. How are you today, good sir? I'm doing well. It was a great intro. Oh, Made thank me you. feel better. Now you're massaging my ego instead of the other way around. <laughs> this is this is a good start. <laughs> so, how have you been keeping yeah. in 2020? You know, it must be a surreal year for you with the success of Philadelphia as well as other projects intermingled with the current status of the world, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it, it's been a good year as far as work is concerned, but it's hard to um, it's hard to ignore what's happening to the world, and you know, we're not out of it yet. I just hope things get better for all. That is. I think that's everybody's hope, Rodney. That's everybody's hope. Um, so, I mean, with regard to the to the state of the world, worldwide pandemic and lockdown, how have you been? How have you been keeping yourself sane? Is it uh, lots of reading and TV, throwing yourself into tones of projects, or is it? Well, I'm not exactly sure. I'm sane. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll check. I'll check soon. Um, it's been so much work. Um, it's been so much to do between television film and comics that uh every day is kind of like the same day i wake up i sit down i try to get as much work done and then i go to sleep and rinse and repeat so uh, i stay busy i stay busy do you uh do you tend to uh, give yourself a weekend give yourself a wee bit of a break no because then i worry about everything that i'm not doing so the anxiety sort of climbs i haven't figured that part out um I hear balance is needed in order to make life, uh, to have a successful life. I haven't figured that out yet. It's like um, I still, it's all writing all the time. One Good. day, maybe. Yeah, that's the, it's the holy grail, isn't it? That fighting that work-life balance. and uh, yes. that, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So have you always been into comics? I mean, I've seen them described elsewhere as your first love. <laughs> can, you, can you remember what the first ever comic was that you picked up? Well... I remember, well, two things I remember about my early love for comics. Uh, Neil Adams was, I was a huge Neil Adams fan. And it seemed like for a three, four year period, he was drawing every cover for DC Comics um, and maybe a few Marvel Comics at the time. And I just loved his artwork. Like even as a kid, I just responded to his artwork so much. 
I think the actual first comic book that I read was Avengers number six or seven at the public library that I found in the old box. I wish I had stolen it because it'd probably be worth a lot of money right now. I don't think <laughs> CGC value would be very high right now, but it was a box of comics that uh, my mother used to, my mother was a school teacher and she did her lesson plans at the public library and they always had a box of comic books and I knew exactly where they were. They were like stuffed under something. Uh, where the real books were. And um, it was a bunch of stuff in there that was just like gold. And um, I would sit there all day and just lose myself in comics. And so it's been, I can honestly say, comics helped me not only learn how to read, but there's a relationship with the storytelling that's different than like Dr. Seuss or, um, you know, Curious George or any of the, the typical kid books. There was something about the movement and pacing of comics that um, just grabbed me and never let go. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's something. I think we can all sort of, on some level, relate to that as as uh, as comic book fans, and and uh, I definitely, I definitely, yeah, resonate with what you're what you're saying there. I guess you know the big obvious question, you know, given what you just said there about Avengers, Avengers six or seven, DC, Marvel. Or has your preference always been for, for indie comics? <clears throat> no, I think because um, when I started reading, there were no indie comics. It was oh, just uh, Marvel and DC. But I think for me, really early on, I started to love creators. Like, as a kid, it was always art. Like, whatever. I loved Neil Adams. I loved Mike Grell. I, lear- I loved um, Jim Starlin, Bernie Wrightson, Mike Plug. It was just a bunch of guys who grabbed my eye even before I knew what their names were. I knew what I liked this art. And I responded to that before anything else. But this weird thing happened as I started to actually get into reading the books. As I got older, the books sort of evolved into like literature. You had um, the Neil Gaiman Sandman and then uh, Alan Moore's, uh, whether it was Watchmen, Miracle Man, V for Vendetta. Any of that stuff, uh, Swamp Thing certainly. I actually uh, own some original pages of uh, Moore's uh, Swamp Thing run that I'm incredibly proud of because it's my favorite run of anything in comics ever. And I started to read them almost like literature, and it was like comics just kept evolving and evolving and evolving, and that kept me interested and helped me develop a writing career at the same time. So. I'm eternally grateful. I mean, was there a certain issue or title that you read that made you think, you know, I could do this for a living? I could I could be a writer? I, I'm still not sure I'm, I can do this for a living, but uh, <laughs> I just happen to be doing it. I think um, Down Amongst the Dead Men, um, Swamp Thing 50, I believe, or one of the annuals, I'm not sure, uh, where Swamp Thing goes to get Abby's soul in uh, hell. There was uh, something about that book that just moved me so much that made me want to one day take a crack at writing comics. You know, the thing that I learned is I've only been writing comics for like three, four years. Uh, it's its own medium that deserves its own due. You know, I, I've been writing television for so long that when I first took a crack, Falcon was my first comic book. I was like, I don't know how to do this. And it took a minute for me to get my legs under me and figure out my style and figure out a voice and figure out how I wanted to um, attack telling uh, uh, graphic stories. But uh, it certainly is its own 
uh, you have to respect the medium a great deal, and I do. Yeah, I mean, you can you can see that and 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 what what we read that you write, you know. So, uh, and I think I think you're being humble. I think you're you're doing pretty all right there, Rodney, with the <laughs> with the, the writing and the career. <laughs> Thank you, I appreciate that. I appreciate um, did did you go to did you go to school of any kind to to develop your your craft any art school or writing school? Yeah, I mean, I went to. Um, yeah, I'm a pretty big guy. I'm like six seven, and uh, I'm not going to say my weight publicly because uh, I have too many comedy friends uh, that may listen to this. <laughs> um, I tried to play sports uh, when I first uh, went to school. That was my focus, but I wasn't good enough. Uh, I was never really good enough, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I always had writing in the back of my, my, my head, but I don't think I had the self-esteem or certainly um, I'd never left home. And when you come from a small town, I'm from a small town in Maryland, I didn't see a bridge from where I was to becoming a professional writer. It was just too big of an idea. So I tried a bunch of other things uh, that didn't work out. And eventually figured out sort of a path uh, to try. And I'm still on that path. There's never been like a, uh, I wish I had that passionate story of, I knew the moment I was born, I wanted to be a writer and everything just kind of fell into place. And I've been writing stories my entire life. That's not my story. I was a a really bad security guard. Uh, I was a horrible security guard. Um, I've been horrible at most things in life. Bad to, bad to horrible, I think, would be the adjectives to describe my performance at most things that aren't writing and producing. And I think most of it just came from the fact that uh, emotionally I didn't feel the same level of connection that I feel to um, being creative and writing. It requires you to invest your heart and your emotion into in order to be able to do it well. And... I don't think I had given that to anything up until that point uh, in the same way uh, other than like my kids. But, you know, it's a it's a blessing to be able to do for a living because it requires you, again, to give all of yourself. And, and I think somehow that makes you feel more connected to life in a weird kind of way. Being able to still be connected to my childhood in a way is something that I loved as a child. That even as as a middle aged guy, um, I still have some semblance to a sense of innocence and purity, and I don't have that in many other areas of my life. But um, I certainly do when it comes to comics. There's a genuine love, and I think when you started in your intro to mean how most guys, you know, start off with comics first and then move to, um, you know, television and film. I think for me, wanting to be in comics was really you know, every Wednesday, getting my comics from the local comic shop has been, even when I didn't read them, I've got like 10 book, ten boxes full of comics that I haven't read yet. But like a junkie, I still go to the comic shop every Wednesday and I still get my books and, you know, promise myself that I'm going to read them. But there's something in that that I've become, there's a dependency someplace on there on comics. <laughs> and I want them to live and I want to be a part of their existence, and so that's why I wanted to be a part of the medium. So it certainly wasn't for money. It certainly wasn't for money. <laughs> that's uh, that's so fantastic, Sharon. That's ironic. I'm literally just back from the comic shop on Wednesday, so you know. Yeah. Totally. I gotta go. I'm gonna go later today. I'm gonna go. <laughs> and I'm gonna go to a couple comic shops in the midst of a pandemic, but I'll have a mask. 
gone and gloves and all uh, of that stuff. Uh, and I love, I love the way you said you get ten boxes of comics that you haven't read oh. yet, yet. And I have to get to the store. I must <laughs> get to the store today for some reason to buy a bunch of books that I'm probably not going to read anytime. I'll read two or three as I'm sitting here. I'll read two or three, but I bought forty, and so. Those other 37, uh, uh, God bless them, you know, <laughs> at some point. Yeah, it's almost that old line of, you know, when kids are young, get them addicted to comic books, because then as they grow up, they'll never have the money for drugs. So. <laughs> yeah, you go. that's very true. Yeah. That's very true. I could certainly buy at least a small trough of cocaine off of <laughs> what I spend every Wednesday uh, on comics. So, yes. So, obviously, you had a... You, you, you still are having a very successful career in TV and movies, but you said you only started writing comics a few years ago. I mean, the, was there a reason why you didn't try to get into it and sort of when you were a little younger no. before TV or movies? I, I actually did. I used to go uh, to the Javits Center, at, uh, the big Comic-Con, that I guess was the East Coast version of San Diego Comic-Con. And I would go up and I would bring my really horrible little scripts. And, you know, when you're an artist and you're getting someone to, um, you know, kind of look at your portfolio, they can look at your portfolio when you're asking someone to read a script, a comic script, and you want to be a writer. And I had no idea, this is before the Internet, of actually how to write a comic uh, script. Uh, there were so many unknowns. And, you know, I would try, but my efforts were really more... Um, I didn't know how to try, if that makes sense. It's like I would write letters in to editors. I would um, go to conventions. I'd try to meet people. But uh, communication then wasn't what communication is now. And uh, I'm actually glad that it took a while for me to um, learn how to read um, excuse, and learn how to write before uh, I actually got some semblance of success. And go, I, I would hate to have uh, read my comics in my 20s. Oh, my God, they'd have been horrible. <laughs> so I understand that, uh, that one of your first roles in L.A. in production was on the original Blade movie, which yeah, was, a, I mean, that's a total game changer when it comes to superhero movies and, and mm -hmm. what superhero movies are now. And, I mean, personally, I mean, Wesley Snipes is a wee bit of a, a martial arts uh, a martial arts legend to me, you know. So could you tell us a wee bit about that, a wee bit about that experience in Blade? Yeah, I, I, was, um, I was living in my car because I lived in my car the first eight months of moving to L.A. And uh, a friend of mine said, I'm working on this movie Blade, and would you like to come and be a production assistant? Sure. I really, I'd only known Blade from being a character. I'd read that Dracula, uh, Tomb of Dracula, I think he was in, number mm -hmm. 10. I'm not sure if that's the number, but I didn't know much about Blade. But uh, I knew who Steve Norrington was, who was the director. He um, developed the chestburster scene in uh, uh, Alien. Uh, Alien, yes, the first Alien. You know, it just was a great experience. I... Um, I was, I'm actually in a couple of scenes in the movie, but you'd have to squint in order to be able to see me. I'm in the blood club scene because the extras kept running out when the blood would drop on them, so they needed somebody <laughs> big to stand in the doorway to push them back in. Uh, so I had to, in order, after a while, the camera couldn't avoid me because I'm so big, so they had to put some fangs in, and um, I had to just stand there and look tough like I'm the bouncer. And I actually, yes, I was a bouncer, but... <laughs> 
in reverse engineering, uh, stopping people from getting out instead of stopping people from coming in. But yeah, that was my first gig, and um, it was a great gig. I, um, Wesley was great. The crew was great. It was a great experience all the way around. Yeah, I think Fantastic. I think Blade sometimes gets overlooked. You know, you think of how yeah. much we we take superhero movies for granted now with the MCU and the Nolan Batman movies. You know, I remember going to see Blade in the cinema when it came out, and here was this hard R-rated superhero movie that mm-hmm. that proved that it could appeal to an older audience. So I, I think it's a really really underrated franchise in general. So um, especially the Del Toro, uh, the second one. Mm-hmm. Um, which was a, like a real monster movie in a way, um, delve deeper into, you know, the vampires whose faces would open and uh, those Pan's Labyrinth looking vampires. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, those first two, I kind of dug a lot. Yeah, so just to bring it back around then again to once once you started writing comics then, so you started off writing comics for Marvel with Falcon. Mm-hmm. How, how was that experience moving from that medium to comics? You said you were slightly frightened of the uh, the change. Probably. It was terrifying. I remember I got the assignment and um, I turned in my, my first script and my editor said, this is ponderous. It's so many words. And I remember getting the art back and seeing you almost had to move the words out of the way to see the art because it was so many words. And because I didn't have a rhythm, I didn't have a, um, I didn't have a way yet of approaching this thing other than my fanboyism and my, um, my love for the medium. You know, I did the worst thing I think a writer could do is I had an agenda. You know, I wanted to please everyone. I wanted to, you know, do great. That was my, my big idea. And I think I had more focus on that than I did on the actual story that I was trying to tell. And, um, I always look at Falcon issue four as my first issue ever, because those first three were me trying to figure out um, how to work within the scene, how to work with an artist, how to work with art, how to the words having a relationship to the actual panels and pacing and all of that stuff. Um, I needed those three issues and I needed Twitter to hate me a little bit in order to be able to um, understand the, the, the magnitude of that, which I was now a part of. Uh, I remember Axel Alonso at a convention, my first convention um, as a writer. He said, prepare to be hated. And I hadn't even written anything yet. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> he said, um, "He said, just prepare to be hated. I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. He's like, you will. And cut to, uh, I learned quickly um, how uh, beautiful uh, the Twitterverse is and when they don't like something. Uh, but... I will say that the criticism actually helped in a way. Once I got past my feelings and I was able to um, apply what was under some of the criticism to the actual work, I think it made me better. Um, It made me slow down and really um, take a different kind of look at uh, how I was approaching uh, storytelling in this medium. And it made me better. And fortunately, I've had the opportunity to continuously practice and get better and better and better and better, I, I believe just by proxy of being able to continuously do it over again and um, having different eyes on it, uh, just developing more of a, becoming more comfortable with the process, I think is the biggest thing. Mm, talk about uh, talk about learning on the job, Rodney. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> it was like somebody gave me a knife and told me to bring back a lion and just threw me out in the jungle. That's how it felt. And... You know, ex- expanding upon that, 
you went on to write uh, Star Wars uh, Lando Double or Nothing. And uh, how, how does it work writing in those pre-established worlds and how much freedom are you afforded in that sort of situation? Not a whole lot of freedom. Uh, more freedom, certainly, with Falcon than with Lando. I think um, I was amazed at how much freedom I actually had because in the world of TV, you have so many, you have a network, you have a studio, you have other producers, you have other writers, you have other people who weigh in on what you do. And I was accustomed to that. In comic books, you write a script, somebody draws it, and they, it's on the shelves. Uh, <laughs> you have an editor, but you know the editor, for the most part, is really working to allow you to express yourself freely. And in television, there's not a whole lot of freedom of expression uh, until you get to a certain level of success. But with Lando, there was already like an established world that you're still sort of kind of connected to. So there are things you can't do, there are characters you can't use. There's, um, there's a very narrow path and boundary that you have to be able to write to. And um, the biggest thing that you have that's yours is tone. Uh, Lando was a, or is, uh, he has a great sense of humor. Certainly the Donald Glover one, uh, Billy D was more of like a swashbuckler kind of guy, whereas um, you know the, the Donald Glover version, the younger version, is more of um, seems like he's more of a card playing criminal. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking for another <laughs> word, but he has like a different. It's a different vibe to him, yeah, so he's really yeah, yeah. just sitting there talking a lot. And um, you know, I, I was trying to create a bridge between the the, the Lando that I knew from the first three movies to the Lando that now was in the solo movie, introducing the solo movie. Uh, but you still have to work between, no, you can't use that ship, you can't use that droid, you can't do this, you can't do that. Um, but it worked out, and I was happy with it. And in terms of those established worlds, you know, are, are there any characters that you would really, really like to write in those established worlds, whether it be the Marvel Universe, yeah. DC Universe, Star Wars? yeah. So a couple of them I'm talking to people about maybe even doing, but I can't say which ones. <laughs> um, I will say which characters I've loved. For DC, as the aforementioned Swamp Thing, um, I'd love to do a Swamp Thing Batman. What's that, Dark Label books that they do? Uh, Black Label? Black Label, yeah. Um, yeah, I would love to be able to do a Swamp Thing uh, Batman something or over there, or even Nightwing. As far as Marvel is concerned, you know, I think I probably... I love their monster world that they don't really delve into too much uh, i know they have a werewolf by night book now and a few others but um i would love to do something with dracula blade those characters so, either way as long as i can stay in the world of horror i think um superhero thing there are folks that are better at that than i am in uh, some ways i like if i did if i deal with superheroes I like to deal with the more the darker ones, the ones that then venture into supernatural or venture into um, more of a um, a gritty, hard and cynical world. I think that more so than the guys that are just like, you know, yay, I'm happy, I'm flying. Look, I can fly. <laughs> uh, love those guys, but as far as being able to tell their stories, I'm always going to want to go back to. Um, you know, where's the vampire? Where's the monster? Where's the zombie? Where's the ghost? Where's that thing? Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. I mean, hearing you mention Blade, I mean, with, with Blade's star rising again, you know, what the potential uh, media productions coming up, I would uh, I would like to see that, Rodney. I would like to see that for sure. You know, but uh, say, no, say no more. I mean, 
I think it's I think it's it's fair to say we're living in a in a golden area, uh, you know, for for indie comics, and there's so mm-hmm. much variety on the racks. We believe sort of that there's a there's an indie comic for everybody. Really, it's almost like an expansion of the initial image comics boom or the Vertigo period, where every every book was a was a was a hit, you know. And what are some of the indie comics that you maybe enjoy or have enjoyed or have been influenced by? Um, you know, I like. Uh... Peter Root, I like Excellence. I like um, Department of Truth, uh, Undiscovered Country. You know, I'm pretty much a fan of the stuff that is doing well at the moment. There's not a whole lot of sleepers that I think uh, I'm a fan of that, you know, people don't know anything about or Mm. haven't already gotten some degree of success on their own. Um, I just love, like, what you just said that there's so many images sort of opened up this, uh, this kind of cavernous, you know, there are a bunch of books that are about a bunch of different things. Mm. And they're not necessarily, um, you know, uh, always generated by star buzz of this writer and this artist. It could be a completely new thing. You've never heard of this person mm. before, but here's this fantastic book um, that's come out. And I think that makes a nice, um, bridge between marvel and dc who pretty much do what they do and but to have this image world and other companies too i think boom does a great job mm. i think um um the book i do incredible for uh, lion forge only press now well we were just uh, i mean those some of those uh, some of those indie comics that you mentioned there uh rodney you know the excellence undiscovered country the department of truth Geez, you're 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 really uh, sort of on our line. Something is killing the children from Boom, uh, yeah. and uh, Ice even Cream Man. yeah, yeah, some of the stuff that AWA even is doing, uh, Burgeon and Company under Axel, you know, and yes, yeah. yeah, great stuff, great stuff. Well, I mean, we're we're talking to a man who picks up forty books a week, so I don't think there's any titles he hasn't heard of. <laughs> well, it's not so much. It's not necessarily forty a week. <laughs> I will say of. There's usually, of the four weeks in a month, there's one week that has, like, the 40. Most of the other weeks, it's probably about 10 or 12. Mm. And then, you know, like, I have, uh, I'll buy stuff, you know, I'll just start buying stuff. Like, this plastic, after I die, I want you guys to fly over to America. You have to come to the funeral first in order to be able to do this, because they'll say, what are these two guys doing breaking into your house? (laughs) This This man, Adam Steele book has like shrink wrap on it. I promise you, it will always have shrink wrap on it. I'm, I'll never open it. And there's probably a good 100, 200 books that are just like that that I have that will never come out of the plastic that I'm still excited to buy. It makes no sense. It's a problem. I need to talk to my therapist about it. But yeah. Well, I, I highly, highly recommend that Mirko and Dolfo's Mercy you just flashed there. That is a mm-hmm. excellent steampunk horror book. I think as a horror fan, you'd really, you'd really dig mm-hmm. that. Um, yeah. But yeah, just building upon what we were talking about, about it being a bit of a golden age for indie comics. I mean, one of the things that we promote a lot at Coffin Heroes is we always say don't follow characters, follow creators. If you find a creator mm-hmm. whose work you enjoy, follow them, see what they're doing next. You know, are there any sort of specific creators around at the moment that you admire, or if you saw their name on a book, you would be, I'm picking that up. Scott Snyder, 
Certainly. As far as writers are concerned, I'm trying to stay in this generation because I always buy a Neil Gaiman book. If Alan Moore did another thing, I would always buy it. Um, you know, there's my generation, then there's this new generation of uh, of guys. I like what Ta-Nehisi Coates is doing on um, Black Panther and Captain America. Um, um, James Tynan, however you say his name, that's doing Batman. Uh, Brian Hill, Saladin Ahmed, uh, if I've said his name properly. Um, it's, you know, it's so many guys and uh, ladies that I really enjoy that um, it's tough to... It's not the same as when, because you have so many different, it's so many, it's almost like television in a way. I grew up in an era where there were three networks, you know, and then it became a fourth when Fox came along. Now it's like 600. So when you ask, you know, what's your favorite TV show? I could probably just sit here for like a half a day and name <laughs> a bunch of different TV shows because the way comics come out now, and there's so many different ones from so many different places and people don't stay on runs for two or three years. They they'll do a book for like six issues or they'll do their arc to get to their trade. And then somebody else is jumping on it. It's a fractured answer, but it's just so many people to kind of dig that, uh, it's different. And I don't have the same attention because there's too much stuff to do to just follow everybody as intimately as I'd like to be able to. Was when I was a kid and I didn't have anything to do. So it's tough. But I dig a lot of folks. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a lot out there to appreciate. But a limited time that we all have to do so. Um, totally understand. I read somewhere that, you know, the idea of Philadelphia, you had it, you've had it since you were eight years old. That's, yes. that's a long time for a story idea to gestate. How many various forms has it taken over those years? Oh, uh, uh, thousands. Uh, it started, if you read, whatever you read probably had, um, it started when my mother took me to see the movie Blackula, and it was a double feature. Blackula and Scream, Blackula, Scream at the Capitol Theater in Annapolis, Maryland, or the Hippodrome in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, I've been corrected a number of times, so I have to say it properly where I saw the film. And then there was like this, this I was, it was like punches. Uh, it was Blackula, there was Kolshak the Night Stalker, there was Salem's Lot, there was Anne Rice's interview with the vampire, it was Dracula, it was like so many different, I was inundated with vampires to the point where I had no choice but to say, hmm, you know, if I were to do this, how would I do it differently? And how could you do it differently? And I think, um, you know, before Philadelphia came out, uh, there was a lot of, oh, God, another vampire book. How is this one going to be different than the other 7,000 vampire books that come out every year? And one of the reasons why it took so long beyond meeting Jason and getting into business and all of that was uh, trying to figure out how I could do vampires differently to sort of give, uh, and it's in execution. I don't think my vampires are that radically different from um, a number of other vampires, but I try to um, incorporate other elements in how I tell the story to make it feel like it's a different experience than some of the other, the classic experience, whether it was um, the Hammer films or, um, you know, where whatever your era of vampire or your, you know, your iteration of vampire is, I tried to do something that felt like there was a degree of uniqueness to how I executed the story. Because if you got a vampire, you got fangs and they suck blood and they typically don't like the sun. 
Um, you can add garlic. You can have religious uh, symbols. You can add a lot of different variations. But for the most part, a vampire is what a vampire is. I think it's what a vampire wants beyond blood that separates um, the storytelling and you know how you're going about expressing said vampire's desire. So I just wanted to figure out a way to do it to where it didn't feel like I was doing what everybody else was doing. So given the idea to cold from such a young age, I think it's probably fair to assume you're a fan of the horror genre then. Oh yeah, that's my favorite genre. I think, um, you know, the comedy door opened first and I walked in, but, you know, I love Stephen King, Richard Matheson, um, you know, Clive Barker, all of that stuff was sort of my upbringing. Early Ridley Scott, um, George Romero, you know, those movies, the Hammer films, like I just said, Universal Monsters, you know, all mm. of that stuff sort of was my, uh, I read Famous Monsters, uh, I had those little model kits that you had to paint, that Frankenstein, Dracula, and all of them, um, always loved the horror genre, and just didn't want to, um, just wanted to, I didn't want to do it a disservice. You know, there's so many people who try so many different things and it's hard to do anything that's completely unique or completely new. But I wanted to try to just I think in the execution is the thing. And you, you, you certainly have not done it a disservice. <laughs> you certainly have Thank not. <laughs> I would hope um, that you wouldn't want to talk to a guy that did a disservice. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, quite the opposite, quite the opposite. Um, are there any out of those things, are there any favorite, particular favorite horror movies or TV shows or comics for that matter? Um, um, certainly Kovacek and Night Stalker um, was very, very influential uh, for its time. I think The X-Files, uh, season three, um, yeah. Season three is the greatest uh, thing I think on television I've seen. The Salem's Lot miniseries when it came on because it was the first time that I can recall for television that I'd read a book that was going to be adapted into a TV show. So I'd read Salem's Lot um, like shortly before the Salem's Lot miniseries uh, back in the day. And that had a big influence on as well. It's still one of my favorite um vampire stories uh a little dated in the way that it was uh shot but still i dug it that's it for television i mean um there's so many influences it's tough mm. At, uh, I'm a big fan of that. Big fan of the Hammer movies that you mentioned earlier on. A lot of the, the Hammer horror movies. Yeah, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee. I mean, um, they used to. I used to be part of a summer program um, for kids that didn't have money. And uh, they put us all on a bus and they take us to like the movies nobody wanted to see. And <laughs> they always had Hammer movies. And all the kids would be like fighting and running around and throwing popcorn at each other. I was glued to the screen. I, I love that was these these heathens running around and pay attention this is art here uh, and uh i loved uh christopher lee and peter cushing and uh whatever they did if they did a frankenstein with really poor makeup i didn't care uh that was it was still uh, cool yeah absolutely i mean one of my particular favorite hammers i think is uh captain chronos vampire hunter uh, yeah that's a that's a fantastic one fantastic yeah, one but... yeah yeah, any excuse for hammer, and I, I can know you're talking about it. I can I can see some of the reflections. You know, oh, so. oh, if you go through Philadelphia with a fine tooth comb, you'll find so many things uh, that are probably copyright infringement for other things. 
that uh, that either Jason digs or I dig, but you'll find little Easter eggs uh, that have uh, should have hatched a long time ago. Uh, that we just just like you never have, you never know how long this ride is going to go. So when you got the opportunity, you take your shot. Well, one of Image Comics' biggest ever titles, of course, has been a title that owes a great deal to the horror classics of the past, The Walking Dead. How, mm-hmm. how was the initial pitch to Image? You know, was it an idea you sent to some different publishers, or was it straight into Image? No, it was. Uh, well, yeah, we had one to another publisher who didn't understand it. Oh, uh, we didn't get it. It was like, wait a minute, John Adams and his vampire and uh, black people. It was like it was a lot, and he didn't necessarily said no. I think he was more stuck in a state of confusion when we tried to pitch it. And um, I kind of lightly pitched it to some people, and we'll get back to you or whatever. But Jason really was the champion of it because he had been working on Spawn uh, with uh, Todd McFarlane. And so uh, Jason worked his way through. I ca- I did the pitch pages, and he just sent them where he thought they should go, and he sent them to the right place. And the rest is history. Certainly, certainly, this side of the world, I, I definitely, you know, with regard to some of the historical elements, you know, of 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 Philadelphia, I certainly had to Google, you know, past presidents and different bits and pieces just to get timelines right in my head, you know. But but the book, I mean, it's absolutely dripping with tone and atmosphere political and, and racial themes, father and son issues. I mean, the idea of immortality is one I'm a wee bit obsessed with through Highlander and, and uh, Greg Rock as the old guard and stuff like that, you know. Can you tell us a wee bit about those those themes and, and where they've come from? And- yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, what I've come to find uh, is that I'm more interested in books if they're trying to say more than just the story that they're telling. Um, if there's if they aspire to be more, not to say that they always hit that mark, but you know there, there's so many things. If you if you have a character like John Adams who's trying to come back and change the world or save the world or, or what have you, he's got to want more than just blood. You know, he's got to want more than just world domination. There's got to be more to it to motivate the action other than just survival. And in order for that to feel or resonate in a way that I would like it to, you have to um, layer that stuff in. You know, you have to have a complicated world in order for God to achieve a complicated goal. And so for me, it's more, it's mostly about trying to um, find things that are true to the book, but also reflect sort of the world that we're in and uh, the history of how that world came to be. And so as I'm writing, I'm always searching my mind um, for things that I feel can um, that sort of um, layer and populate the world in such a way that it feels authentic and genuine and organic to what a John Adams of today would want. Yeah, I mean, and those, I mean the, the relationship between father and son in that, you know, mm-hmm. is, is really interesting. It really, I mean, that's one of the things that I think really glues the series to, to the real world, you know, mm-hmm. that. That, that relationship's really even, you know, even given, you know, uh, Sangster Seniors, you know, not quite being alive. <laughs> yes. You know, it's. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But their problems are alive. You know, whether or not he's alive, their problems are still alive and kicking. I think, um, you know, that I had my relationship with my parents wasn't a straight line. And, um, you know, there are a lot of things that, um, 
I guess cathartically I try to work through when I'm telling that story as well. You know, I learned a while ago that you can write with your head or you can write with your heart. The great ones use both. I'm trying to work with my heart as much. And I think you can see in certain scenes, there's certain moments in Philadelphia that are, that I think Jason brings to life in such a way. The scene with uh, the character Seesaw and his grandmother, um, that was, you know, I had a similar scene with my grandmother uh, right before she passed. And I try to find things that um, if they move me, hopefully they move the reader. That's sort of the simple math of it. It's like when I'm when I'm telling a story, do I care? Because if I care, I believe the characters will care and someone in the audience hopefully will care as well. So, yeah, the father's a son story it means a lot to me as well mm. i mean that's thanks i appreciate you sharing that rodney um you, you mentioned jason jason sean alexander uh yeah, your artist exactly. how, how did how did jason come on board you know i, I we certainly can't imagine anybody else drawing philadelphia because his style's perfect one of the, the stellar things about the book you know so how did you guys get paired together in that or did, did i look- was I, we did a book, uh, an art book together um, for another company. For some reason, they asked me to interview him because I was a writer and he was an artist. And um, I, uh, I did it, and we sort of hit it off. Uh, I say that because we're fighting right now. We fight like weekly. And so it's according to when you catch me, uh, how I feel about Jason. There's a, there's a foundational love there, but... Do I love him like a friend or do I love him like a dog that just bit me? It's like there's a weird, what's the love? Uh, <laughs> right now I'm in the middle. But um, since after I, uh, since we only live like a mile and a half apart from each other, I would, um, we would go to dinner at least once or twice a month and we pitch each other things and he would hate the things that I pitched him and I would hate the things that he pitched me. So one night uh, he was drinking and I pitched him Philadelphia and he said, Oh, I like that. And I'm thinking it's the alcohol talking. I'm not, I'm <laughs> it's not, you know, it's not the idea because I've been rejected um, so soundly in the past. And so like the next day or two, he called and he said, that thing, that vampire thing you were talking about, um, have you written it down? I said, no, it's just an idea I've been kicking around for years. He said, write it down. You know, I think it's something we could do together. I still didn't believe him. Um, I didn't believe him for quite some time. Um, I still don't believe him, even 11 issues in, I guess, 12. <laughs> and eventually things just kind of fell into place. And I, I'm a big fan of his art, regardless of what he does. So I try to write to things that I like to see him do. And I think Jason is like a director more so than an illustrator. He moves the book in a way. He makes it all cohesive. If sometimes there's some issues that have a lot going on, and he makes it seamless, the cohesion of the the various stories, so it still feels like it's one story, um, rather than the five different characters that are doing five different things in their various worlds. Mm. We had one issue where we had one character that was in. Uh, riding down the river sticks and he was passing hell and whatever. And then we had this thing that's happening in real time with um, the vampire apocalypse. And then we had a story going on in the past 
uh, where you know we're telling all of these different stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, Jason is able to bring them all together and marry them so they feel like one. Yeah, I kind of feel like you're reading my mind slightly there with uh, with regards to the next question. As you know, I think it would be unfair as well not to mention Lou NCT's color work on the book. You yes. know, perfectly marries with uh, Jason's artwork. I mean. A personal issue, I, a personal highlight I was going to say was issue eight, which is my you know favorite issue so far. Between right. those city landscapes on fire, the attack at the concert, Sangster Senior's journey through the afterlife, and the couple reunited walking through the endless fields of flowers, it's really, really stunning to look at. I mean, uh, are they a friend of Jason's or were they paired on the book together? How did they come on board? Jason and Luis knew each other from someplace, and um, I've never met them um other than email, and um, I just love the work. I think from the beginning to now, um, I think the word you used earlier was tone, the way the color and shading um, sets a tone and a mood and an atmosphere is something that I couldn't necessarily write to. You know, it's necessary for it to come across in the art and the color. And um, those two guys together, it's the same as Jason and I. And I think even for Marshall with the lettering, Everybody just sort of fits, you know. We all mm. just kind of fit together. And it works. Certainly, certainly does. Certainly does. Uh, sticking, sticking with issue eight. We were just, we were just talking about there. You know, an issue nine. I mean, well, I mean, I loved, absolutely loved the end of that issue. You know, and uh, really, really touched. You know, but was there a temptation to let Sangster Senior? have his happy ending, or was it just too good an opportunity to keep the character of the story? Oh, yeah, I mean, I want him to have a happy ending. Um, I want him to be. Uh, I want him to be in a good place. I think um, there's too much happening in the world, and he hasn't gone through enough yet to get to where he needs to be. I think in order for him to have the peace that he he craves, but I also wanted to give him hope that that peace was there for him. Um, so often in horror there's a sense of um, dread that there is no hope, that darkness always wins. And I think that sort of goes against, if you have vampires and you have human beings, what's the difference? That human spirit, that hope, that thing that we have for that optimism. I don't know if vampires have it in the same way. And so I wanted Sanctuary to have something to look forward to and something to keep fighting for. Uh, in the tangible world, you know, and I think Tevin or even the vampires beyond him, they sort of have a degree of uh, optimism within their goal. I did not want like the, the the mustache twirling bad guy who just sort of uh, I'm going to kill everyone. I'm going to drink all the blood and do the thing. Um, I wanted a degree of thoughtfulness. If you have uh, perspective and you have um, immortality. Hopefully, it would evolve you to a place where, um, if ego doesn't set in, it evolves you to a place where um, your goals are more, sort of like, again, to go back to Alan Moore and Miracle Man, if I had a magic word that I could say, and it would make me the most powerful entity in the world, uh, would I just fight in the name of America and truth, justice in the American way, or would I try to change the earth? Would I try to make everything... Um, better if i'm a vampire and i have immortality you know blood is just sort of kind of um a necessary evil but 
hopefully I want more out of my existence than just the need for human blood and creep around in the shadows. And so trying to split that hair of vampires should be frightening to human beings because they're, you know, the predatory nature of the relationship. But I think that doesn't mean that they have to be limited to just that thing that affects human beings. They can have more, but then what does that look like? You know, I was always intrigued by the idea of what vampires do when they're in the coffin. And that's where uh, I do that a lot of them dreaming, thinking, musing, uh, dealing with their past, dealing with um, trauma. Um, you don't lose that just because now you have to drink blood and you're part of the undead. So, you know, just trying to expand the world in my own little way. Mm, and, and and what a closing line for that issue. That was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There, there it is yeah. right there. I mean, we don't like to swear too much on this podcast, you know, but, you know, it's even just the art, the everything about it, this better be really fucking important. It's just a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful closing line. Um, sometimes with Jason when he calls. every time jason calls i'm sure when he reads that he just you know reads it in your tone then i'm sure (laughs) he said three issues ago he said sanction is starting to sound a lot like you (laughs) yes and you're starting to sound like jimmy to me so it's working how far in advance have you planned philadelphia if you don't mind me asking you mean do you know the ending in your head i've got five or six arcs sort of planned out in my head you know, it's uh, invariably I have a rough sketch in my head and then circumstances come in. And there are a couple of characters that are in the third arc that aren't part of the um, they're mentioned in the second arc. You know, they haven't had a big stage to be on. And I think the thing is just kind of pacing. I don't want it to be too slow. I don't want it to be too fast. The first arc I felt was a little fast, you know, the way that I wrapped it up. But I wanted to lay a foundation for where the book was going in the future. Uh, there's some mini series on television. The Wire did a good job at this. It's like, uh. by the time you were at the end of a season of The Wire, it felt like you had had a satisfying meal. You can have another meal, but if this were the only meal, this was a really satisfying meal. And I sort of wanted this to be that way as well. I wanted uh, each arc to feel like, you know, that there was a fully realized story that's taking place that you sort of set things in motion and keep going in the future. But there was a beginning, a middle and an end of what it was. It wasn't just there to I got to put a cliffhanger in just to get you to come back. One of the downsides of being a writer of me, how I approach writing is I know it'll never be as good on paper as it is in my head which builds the resistance to wanting to do it every day. But that said, um, I'm excited about where we're trying to go. I think it's going to surprise a bunch of people. Awesome. I mean, I think we're both glad that you said five or six arcs rather than five or six issues. I think nah, we were... <laughs> nah. so far, we've got a, a spinoff plan. We've got a couple of things in the works. Uh, the Philadelphia world will get bigger. How tempting is it? To work, we've already talked about the, you know, the father-son stuff, you know, to work real-life comparisons into your work with Philadelphia specifically, you know, the fact that it centers around a mm, sort of corrupted president leading a bloodthirsty cult is kind of hard to ignore, but easy to understand. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Is it a political statement? No. Uh, I'm not trying to reflect 
anything that's happening in the world per se today, other than a degree of apathy that I think you feel. Um, the world is so polarized to where, um, at least America, I don't know how it is over there, but over here it's so polarized to where, um, you know, it's either you're on our side or you're not. If you do take a position on one side or the other, it becomes a distraction. And I don't want that to be part of the book. I want you to be able to just read the book and take from it what you will. I do think there's something under the nature of the polarization. There is a sentiment that's there. And that sentiment is one of cynicism. And so that cynicism is certainly in the book. And it'll never get to a place, though, where I take a side and say, so excuse me, someone's right or wrong, um, mm. because then it's over. You know, yeah. it's like we're not even doing a book anymore. We're, we're making a political statement. And it's not to say political statements can't be done and done well. I just don't think this is the book for it, because you've already got politics. You've already got class. You've already got race. Um, there are times when I've seen guys get on their soapboxes and it takes you completely out of the book mm. because you're so busy focusing on um the politics of how you feel that it's like well wait a minute am i reading a book or am i listening to someone preach to me and i never want to be that person when i make a statement about um i tend to try to talk about life and uh, ego and fear and anger I, t I tend to talk about emotion more so than about um politics per se you know, I think all of those things affect politics and political positions. Um, some things are motivated and dominated by fear. There fear is fear-based thinking. There's uh, sometimes there's logic that's detached from empathy and emotion. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. But I just think um, as soon as you try to say this person is bad or that person is bad, I'm no longer um, servicing the thing that I'm trying mm. to service, which is telling a solid story. And, and I mean, that, I guess that can stop the conversation as well, which is possibly yes. the worst thing, you know. Exactly. So do you have any say, Rodney, over the over the variant cover artists for Philadelphia? You've had J. Scott Campbell, nope. you've had Mario Scalera. Nope. No, nope. Jason emails me. Jason emails me a list and says, this is who's this is who I got to do a variant. That's there's much saying. I'm, all I can say is great. Jason is responsible for our, all things artistic on Philadelphia. I um, there'll be times when we're putting a book together where he'll say, "What were you thinking?" or he'll yell at me because I put I do, I do this a lot where I don't put the splash page on the right page. I'm sorry, Jason. And he'll actually yell at me, and I'm a lot bigger than him, but he drinks, so I never know you know what state of mind he's in when he's yelling at me. But um. He's the variant guy. He finds the artists. He um, he does all of that stuff. Well, it must have been quite the uh, the appeal to you that Neil Adams stepped in and did one of them. Now that was me because <laughs> I. So you do have to, some uh, say. You do have some say. Well, I had say with that one. I had <laughs> say with that one because um, I shop at Neil's uh, comic shop here in uh, L.A. Mm -hmm. The Krusty Bunker. And I've had the pleasure of meeting Neil a few times and buying a lot of his original art. And um, it was like, hey, you know, the guy that did that great Tomb of Dracula uh, cover, a bunch of them, in fact, 
would you mind doing one for us? And so <laughs> that was my own childhood thing. As another one of those childhood things of Neil Adams, man. It's Neil Adams. Absolutely. Why the setting of Philadelphia? I mean, I understand you're, as you say, originally from Maryland. You know, I live in California. Any special bond to that city or was it just a cool sounding yeah. title? Philadelphia has a very unique relationship with uh, American history. You know, the Liberty Bell and a lot of famous documents and uh, it's just seeped in American history. And it also has a lot of social, a lot of the social ills that come with um, the inner cities of poverty, high crime rate, homicide rate. Um, they're struggling on one end, but yet it's a symbol of another thing on the other side. And there was something about those two um, elements that I thought was kind of cool. Mm. Uh, you know, it, it's like you go to Philly in the daytime, uh, you get one experience. You go to Philly in the nighttime, you get another experience. And why not just add vampires to that? I, I understand that uh, Philadelphia has been optioned for a, a live action adaption. And, uh -huh. you know, given that you have worked, obviously, in both mediums, it must be must be very interesting. And you would have a certain amount of control over how it's adapted. That must be that must be a, a fairly satisfying sort of a sort of a thought. It's traumatic. Uh, <laughs> I've sit here and um, pluck away at this thing all day, every day. You know, you just want it to be. I want the script to be a nice reflection of what what's under the book. It's like I love that first season of The Walking Dead. Um, days gone by. The first, the pilot. Um, I thought it was a fantastic adaptation of um, Robert's book. And I want Philadelphia to feel the same way. I want it to feel um, like you really, you're in Philadelphia and this is possible. Um, that's something I've been trying to get across in Philadelphia uh, from day one. This could really happen. Uh, it's preposterous if you were to sit down and say a former president and his father and son and all the other elements if you just, you know, <laughs> You know, Jason always says the way that I hooked him was um, when I pitched it to him, I said, it's um, Dracula meets Hamilton meets Sanford and Son. That was what brought him in. And so, uh, you know, I always want to feel like it's unique in its own way, but it also feels like it's something that is possible. It's like I remember seeing The Exorcist um, as a kid and I was terrified. I was terrified because it felt so real. And that's how I like my horror. I like my horror to feel horrified. And um, finding that middle ground between the real and the surreal uh, is always the work. It's always the work of, is this too big or is it not big enough? And if you look at like the Marvel Universe um, away from the comics, I think they've done a really good job at um, making it feel like it's a human experience as much as it is a superhero experience trying to do the same thing over here with Philadelphia, the TV show. And obviously with the walking dead, it's, it's quite famous for twisting what happened in the comic books, you know, so that if comic fans come to the show, they won't just be watching a literal adaptation. Do you think right. it'll be extremely faithful Philadelphia, or do you think you'll tweak it a little bit here and there? <clears throat> I think it's necessary to tweak it here and there. I think, but I think it'll also be a faithful adaptation. Uh, I wrote it with TV in mind. You know, I wrote it with how I would execute a TV show, you know. So it'll probably be closer to the book than The Walking Dead is. 
And just on that topic, Rodney, any any dream casting for the project? Um, well, some of those dreams are coming true, so I can't really say anything right now. Ah, we dream tried. Casting. We like tried. If, if I say something against, you know, hey, we got this guy, but I would love to have gotten that guy. I probably <laughs> wouldn't make that guy really happy or, yeah, you know, yeah. motivated. But so far, everything has sort of been exactly how I would like it to be. Well, that is that is very nice to hear and 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 very much a confidence booster. Uh, I have to say, uh, really looking forward to really looking forward to that whenever it comes to fruition. Hopefully, in twenty twenty one, we'll see. Lovely. Already looking forward to twenty twenty one already. Then. <laughs> yes. Just, yes. Not like you had anything else. <laughs> just to skip twenty twenty, of yeah. course. Yeah. Um, not a vaccine. Don't worry about that vaccine. Philadelphia TV. Philadelphia, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. Who needs the vaccine? Well, you're clearly a very busy man. You know, we we appreciate, you know, all of your time. We've just got one or two sort of final questions just to wrap up then. So, I mean, obviously you're very busy with the adaptation of Philadelphia, busy with the ongoing comic. Are there any other future projects you'll be working on at the same time? Yeah, I mean, I'm doing a miniseries about Tiger Woods. Um that I'm writing now, I'm doing an ongoing series about the Lakers, the Showtime Lakers, Magic Johnson and uh, Dr. Buss and Kareem and company uh, for HBO. I'm doing a movie for a new Regency, a monster movie. Um, I've got a couple of projects at HBO Max. Um, there's a lot and a lot of comic books. A lot. Mm-hmm. I'm looking to my board, my to-do list. Um <laughs> So if you want to, if you like, want to swing yeah. that camera around, no, no. man, because like, as soon as you said other things, it's like my head turns because that's where the anxiety <laughs> is. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven comic books, uh, probably in 2021, that will see the light of day if I can hold up and write all of this stuff. But anything, uh, anything you want to tease for us, Rodney? Uh, let's say the Philadelphia world uh, could potentially expand. As far as that's concerned, I think there's a couple of things up there from the big two. Yeah, I have a Zombie Love uh, Studios as a studio that I've created. Um, and uh, I'll have three horror books coming out. Lovely. Again, we're, we're in the midst of building them now and putting it together, but there'll be some press and some stuff and some other things that are happening around there. So... It's a lot going on. Yeah, well, we always just like to finish off just by, you know, you, you may have even answered some of these questions, I suppose, as we've went off, but it's just always the way we sort of sign off our interviews is that we just ask for what your all-time favorite DC title is, your all-time favorite Marvel, and your all-time favorite indie title. Oh, boy. Um, my favorite all-time DC is Swamp Thing, Saga of the Swamp Thing. Uh, my all-time favorite Marvel comic is a little bit harder. I'm going to say Frank Miller's run on Daredevil, um, but it's so tough to for that one because uh, there's so many. Yeah. Um, for indie, I'm going to say Philadelphia, um, <laughs> only because why not? There could be no uh, other answer. There's a lot of great stuff in there, but I'm going to say I, I love Bernie Wrightson and Steve Niles as Frankenstein. It came out a few years ago as well, but uh, I'm going to say um, Philadelphia for today. That that is that is fair, and uh, I don't think you're the only one in this particular conversation that would uh, would agree with that. So, <laughs> thanks much. I appreciate that. 
Well, as I say, you've been extremely generous for your time, so we'll uh, we'll certainly finish it up there. Um, All right. You know, I just wanted to say, you know, just in case anybody listening to this has missed out on the brilliance that is Philadelphia. So the first trade paperback is in stock at all times in the store. For, for us, what we always do is we have staples in our store that we make sure are always on the shelf. Things like Saga, things like The Walking Dead, things like, you know, Chew, things like Deadly Class. You know, Philadelphia is now one of those books, so it is always available. If we're ever out of stock of it, I'm just going to close the whole store down. So, you know. <laughs> You know, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> we have our principles. So, yeah, the first trade paperback's available, guys. It's titled Sins of the Father, and single issues are approaching the end of the second arc, with the second volume, I believe, due out in March of next year. So, I believe that's it. Indeed. So, we will let you get back to your 322 projects that you have going on right now. Thank yeah. you so, so much for your time. It genuinely has been a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, best of luck for the future. An, an absolute pleasure chatting to you, Rodney. I really appreciate. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, your 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 sharing and your your genuineness here. Well, thank you, and I hope we get to do it again. Yeah, Excellent. and uh, if you're you ever make it over to this side of the world, uh, certainly give us a shout. Be more than uh, be more than happy to, to to see you in person. Fantastic! Once the world reopens, <laughs> we're all waiting for that day. Awesome. Thanks again. All right, guys. Take Talk care. Soon. All right.